example of faith, or uh, how, how faith can be seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then let's jump down to verse 8, and we're going to see some, some of these people of faith that are mentioned in the chapter. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 21, by faith Sarah... Uh, I'm sorry, is that 21? My, my print's too small there. Whatever verse we're at, you know where we are. Okay. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him, God, faithful, who had promised. And therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, was born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, and here we go, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 13, there is where our title comes from today, Strangers and Exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they'd have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then turn the page over to chapter 13, one more verse, chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here we have no lasting, enduring, permanent city, but we seek the city that is to come. You don't have to be around me very long before I'll let you know that I grew up in upstate New York, God's country, we call it. In fact, if you remember, if you are here a month ago, I was introduced as being from East Peoria, and I had to straighten that out. No, I live in East Peoria. I'm from upstate New York, okay? Well, Judy's from there as well. And over the past 45 years that we've had to live out here in the Midwest, uh, we've been making trips back to New York at least once, sometimes twice a year, uh, visiting family and vacations and so forth. When our three kids were little... And two of our three kids, uh, Rhonda Kaufman was their kindergarten teacher many years ago. When those three kids were little, we used to make the 15-hour or so trip to upstate New York through the night with the kids sleeping. It was a nice, quiet, peaceful trip. Now that we're getting older, we typically take a couple days to do it. And often we'll stop and spend the night in a hotel in Columbus, Ohio area. It's kind of a nice stopping point on the way. Now what I'm about to say has never happened, and I need to repeat that. Please hear this carefully. What I'm about to say has never happened, but just suppose that uh, one of those times that we stopped in Columbus, uh, we got an early start out of Peoria, and we were there by noon, so we rented an apartment, and we filled it with furniture and went to the grocery store, stocked up on enough food staples to last for months, stopped by the post office to arrange for mail, uh, set up the utilities, checked the classifieds and found a job, looked online for a good church, called the pastor, got acquainted. Just suppose we did all that in that one afternoon in Columbus. It was a busy day, and we went to bed early. We were tired, but boy, did we feel good about all that we'd accomplished. Well, the next morning, uh, we got up, got out of our apartment lease, and put the furniture on the lawn with a help yourself sign, and 
Gave the groceries to the neighbors, quit my new job, called the pastor to say goodbye. It was nice getting acquainted with you. And just continued on home to New York. Just suppose that's how we spent our day in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, do you see any problem with that? Was it wrong to do those things we did that day? Well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with anything we did, was there? Here's the problem. There in Columbus, we had no lasting, enduring city. We would have spent that day as if we were staying put in Columbus, Ohio, rather than just visiting for a short time, a very short time. May I suggest to you that the temptation of most of us Christians today is to live as if we are staying put on planet Earth rather than just passing through, rather than just stopping by for a very short visit. It's a problem for most non-Christians as well, but understandably so for them. Some of you may be familiar with a popular book that was written, I think, 20 years ago, titled A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. And one of, the, one of the authors, Dave Freeman, actually died after a fall in his home. He was only 47 years old at the time. He'd only accomplished about half the things that he had on that list. But here's a quote from that book. This life is a short journey. How can you make sure you fill it with the most fun and that you visit all the coolest places on earth before you pack those bags for the very last time? That's an understandable perspective from an unbeliever. But we Christians live by another book, and the Bible gives us at least two clear statements in this regard. And I invite you to take your handout. Hopefully everybody got a handout. Take it and follow along. Fill in the blanks if you'd like. Statement number one, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Here we have no lasting city. And we saw in our scripture reading those patriarchs of the faith in Hebrews 11 acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. I'm using the ESV that I'm reading from. If you have a different translation, it might say strangers and pilgrims, aliens and strangers, foreigners and nomads. Turn with me to the very center of your Bible. Uh, Those who have time on their hands to figure out what that is, tell us that it's Psalm 117. It's the exact center. So go to the exact center and turn over a page to Psalm 119. And go to verse 19. Psalm 119, verse 19. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. I'm a sojourner, a stranger, a foreigner. The psalmist needed God's word for a guideline, a map for navigating this foreign land. I know the route to New York very well, but every once in a while we take side trips into unfamiliar territory. We're strangers who'd be in trouble without a road map or a GPS. Look at the very familiar verse 105 in this same psalm. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, a lamp and a light as I travel through this dark foreign land. Turn back with me to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. This is shortly before David's death. He's about to anoint Solomon as king. And in the middle of his congregational prayer, David says this in verse 15, 1 Chronicles 29, 15. For we are strangers before you, Lord. We are strangers and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Strangers, sojourners, aliens, pilgrims, transients, visitors, and there is no abiding. Some translations say no hope, no prospect of life not ending. All that to say a temporary resident. This world is not our home. Well, not only is this world not our home, but secondly, the Bible makes it clear that life is short. 
Life is short. The quote from the Dave Freeman book that I read to you started with these words. This life is a short journey. He got that part right. Little did he know how short his journey was going to be. But in the same way that one day in Columbus, Ohio is a very short time for Judy and me, so also is our life on earth a very short and infinitely short time in light of eternity. The Bible uses a lot of different metaphors to illustrate this fact, and I want us to look at several of them. There's several right in the book of Job. Go over to Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7. Look at verse 6. Job 7, 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. A weaver's shuttle. Did you ever see a skilled weaver working on a loom in a living history museum? It's ancient technology. It goes all the way back to Job's day. He apparently was just watching that shuttle going back and forth so quickly and thinking, just like that, there goes my life. It's over. Go on to verse 7. Remember that my life is a breath, a breath, an, an exhalation. Scientists tell us that we take a breath 15 to 20 times a minute, every three to four seconds. Remember Job spent a whole week in silence with his three so-called friends? He could have easily noticed his breathing during that time of silence. Three to four seconds, just like that. That's how quickly life is over. Turn the page to chapter 9. Look at verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner, a courier. That was one of the fastest known things of Job's day. They were men who were employed by the wealthy and by royalty, who needed messages delivered quickly. Job was the wealthiest man of his day. He undoubtedly employed couriers. Hand him a message, out the door, out of sight. There goes my life, just that fast. Look at verse 26. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. A skiff was a papyrus boat. It was a, it was a canoe boat from Egypt. It was the speedboat of the day. Perhaps some of that week spent sitting in silence was along a river bank, watching the skiffs quickly pass by. Along that same river, there could have been eagles swooping down, grabbing prey, flying away. And just that quickly, life is over. I'll fly away, as the old Southern Gospel song says. And keep in mind that Job lived for probably 200 years. Well, let's move back to the book of Psalms. This guy's this time go to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. There's a... a, a Emphasis on the brevity of life in this whole psalm. Look down at the end of verse 12. I am a sojourner with you, Lord, a guest like all my fathers. Then go back up to verse 4. Verse 4, Psalm 39, 4. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Lord, remind me of how brief my time on earth will be. Those words remind me of of Moses' words. These are David's words, but Moses in Psalm 90, remember when he said, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Look here back at verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. Handbreadths. Verse 4 talks about measuring my days. Verse 5 gives me a measurement. There, There were various measurements used by builders in the Old Testament days, kind of similar to our yard and foot and inch. They used the cubit. The cubit was just taking your arm from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. It was about 18 inches. Uh, They also had the span. The span was just taking your hand and stretching it out from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger. It was kind of a half cubit. David didn't say span or cubit. He says hand breadth. Hand breadth is just the base of your four fingers, about three inches. David lived to be about 70, three score years and 10 that Moses mentions back in that same Psalm 90. 
Well, back here at the end of verse 5, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. A mere breath. This is actually a different Hebrew word than what Job used. This word here speaks of a vapor, a puff of steam, a puff of smoke, seeing your breath on a cold day. Remember the epistle of James talking about that? James says, don't go around saying, tomorrow I'm going to go do this, but rather say, if it's God's will, I'm going to do this or that. Why? Because, James says, life is a mist, a vapor, a morning fog. appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. And James' point is, you don't know you're going to be here tomorrow. You say, if it's God's will, this is what I plan to do. Well, a couple more examples, and we'll move on. Go to Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verse 11. This is... Another, a psalmist other than David this time, Psalm 102, 11, My days are like an evening shadow. The sun is setting, soon gone. Remember David mentioned a similar thing in that prayer back in First Chronicles 29 when he said, Our days on earth are a shadow. Look at the rest of verse 11. I wither away like grass. Turn the page to Psalm 103. Look at verse 15. For his, for man, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. Grass, wild flowers, here for a season, and then gone. Well, if number one, this world is not my home, if number two, life is short, then how should I be living? Well, let's turn it around and look at it from a non-Christian's viewpoint. If this is all there is, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's come up with our own list of 100 things to do before we die. Let's indulge in every possible pleasure there is. And again, that's not a a surprising response. The non-Christian has nothing else to live for. No hope beyond the grave or a false hope that we're all going to get to heaven somehow regardless. And while it's sad to see a non-Christian live that way, how much sadder to see a Christian who lives as if he actually believes that. Let's go back into the New Testament, this time to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter appeals to a holy living here on the basis that we're just passing through. This, this short time here on earth is not what life's all about. Don't, don't give in to those sinful desires, those passions of the flesh that are waging war against you. He says you're a sojourner, you're an exile. That word sojourner is from a Greek word meaning to settle down a while alongside of pagans. By the way, here's a little bit of trivia for you. The word pagan comes from the Latin paganus. And one definition of paganus is civilian. The early Christians called non-Christians pagans, civilians. Why would they do that? Because they were not soldiers of Christ. They were not a part of the Lord's army. They were civilians. They were not waging war against these passions of the flesh that Peter is talking about. Here in the next verse, verse 12, Peter tells us to live good lives among these pagans. We have a testimony to maintain. We're to let our light shine in a way that glorifies our Father in the world but not of the world. This world is not our home. Peter says the very fact that we are sojourners and exiles should be incentive to holy living. A good example was Moses. If we'd gone a few more verses into our scripture reading in Hebrews 11, it says that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could conceivably have been the next Pharaoh. Rather, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
There are pleasures in sin, fleeting pleasures. You know, the bottom line for us Christians is who is in control? The humanist says, I'm in control of my life and destiny. I'm, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Remember that poem? And as much as we Christians uh, like to dislike the word humanism, and for good reason, uh, we can be very humanistic ourselves, can't we? And rather than yielding control to the Holy Spirit, we want to be in control. And what happens when we're in control? Well, among other things, we start living like permanent residents, like the, like the pagans around us. So two clear statements. This world is not my home. Life is short. Now how about one bad example? The Bible gives us a good example of how not to do it, or should I say a bad example. In the year A.D. 61, about 30 years after Christ had ascended back into heaven, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. It's his, it's his first imprisonment there. While he's there, he writes what, he call, what, what we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. At the end of two of those letters, he sends greetings to the, from the men who are there with him in Rome. The end of Colossians includes Luke, the beloved physician. Incidentally, that's how we know Luke was a doctor. He makes some, uh, he alludes to medical knowledge in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, but it's only here in Colossians 4 where it's specifically stated, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, D-E-M-A-S. If you go to the end of Philemon, greetings from fellow workers, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Luke, and Demas, D-E-M-A-S. Well, fast forward five years. Paul's in Rome again. He's in prison a second time. He's writing his last letter that we know of. Turn with me to that letter, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, go to chapter 4 and look at verse 9. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 9. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Why? Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, Paul's fellow worker, we said hi to Philemon. He said hi to the church in Colossae. In love with this present world, has deserted me. It's interesting that uh, Bible scholars tell us the phrase, this present world, refers to the age we now live in, including its good things. It doesn't have to be limited to just those passions of the flesh that Peter talked about. It could be the good things as well. You know, the Bible typically refers to the lust of the flesh as desiring wrong and sinful things, but it could actually refer to any unbalanced desire, whether good or bad. You know, I can have a lust, an unbalanced desire for junk food, which I do. Chocolate is not junk food. I can also have an unbalanced desire for good food. That's why there's verses about gluttony in the Bible. Same thing for good television, junk television. If I, have, if I had a TV with enough channels on it that are out there these days, we see this when we go to a hotel with 500 channels, I could sit and watch good television for 24 hours. It wouldn't be what the Lord would want me to do. That's not a good use of my time, but there is good television. Awful lot of junk television as well, of course. Good internet, junk internet. Good books, magazines, junk books, magazines. I can have an unbalanced desire for sports, politics, woodworking, working out, Facebook, crossword puzzles, Twitter, texting, knitting, video games, Pinterest, gardening, YouTube, garage sales, Instagram, hunting. Have I left anybody out here? How many of us get caught up with, have a lust for the good things of life, and it's taking time away from the better things, the best things, the things that are going to count for eternity? And I don't say that to be a killjoy here. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God richly provides us with all good things to enjoy. 
The issue here is not desire, but unbalanced desire as we live this very short time here on earth. Don't waste your life. Are you familiar with that book by John Piper? Don't waste your life on things that don't count for eternity. Demas apparently lost sight of the fact that here we have no lasting city. So, I know that as a Christian, this world is not my home. I know that life is short. I know that Demas set a bad example. What should I be on guard against? What are some telltale signs that I may be getting a little too comfortable, a little too settled in? Maybe too short-sighted, too near-sighted. All I can see is just what's right here in front of me. Well, let me suggest four questions to help answer that question. And there could be 40 others, but here's four questions to get us started. Question number one, how am I spending my time? How am I spending my time, especially my leisure time? Have I adopted the world's relentless pursuit of pleasure, always having to do something, always needing to be entertained? You know, back here in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that in the last days, people are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And, you know, we like to think, well, that refers to those non-Christians, and and in the context, it does. But how many of us are just as guilty of being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? I mean, how does my leisure time compare to the time I spend with God each day? My devotional life, prayer, Bible reading. Am I so busy trying to catch up on the news and the sports and the weather and the politics and all my social media when I first get up in the morning, that by the time I'm done, it's, oh, my goodness, look at the time. i got to get to work. How does my leisure time compare to the time I spend caring for my family, serving the Lord, serving others, being involved in the life of this church, being involved in the life of the church around the world? Maybe I'm busy doing good things, but it's keeping me from doing the better things. Demas may have fallen in love with the good things of this world. Maybe I'm a workaholic. I have time for nothing except my job. No time for my family or my Lord. Remember Paul's encouragement to the church in Ephesus when he said, redeem the time, make the, make the best use of your time, buy up every opportunity to do good. How I spend my time is an indicator of how settled in I've become. Let me repeat that. How I spend my time is an indicator of how settled in I've become. Question two, how am I spending my money? How am I spending my money? There's plenty to spend it on, isn't there? Homes, cars, hobbies, entertainment, clothes, toys, technology. What's my attitude toward all those things? Always wanting the newest, the best, the latest fad and fashion, whether or not I can afford it, or maybe just because I can't afford it. There's no time for a sermon on stewardship, but let me just remind you that all that we have is God's. Not, not just 10%, not just what I put in the offering plate. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything, everything in it. So the issue is not 10% God's, 90% mine. It's 100% his. And therefore, the question is not how much of my money should I give to God beyond some legalistic 10% tithe. Rather, how much of God's money should I give back to him? How much of God's money can I in good conscience keep for the needs and wants of myself and my family? Missiologists tell us that some 20% of the people in the world are still unreached. They've never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. I was glad to walk by your map out there and see the different missionaries around the world that you're supporting. Do I have a responsibility to use some of my resources to help get the gospel out to these unreached places? There are children dying of starvation every day around the world. Should I be giving money to help Christian organizations feed them bread and tell them about the bread of life? There are Christians in some countries who have no Bibles. No written language. 
I've, I've got at least a dozen different English translations sitting on my shelf. Should I be giving toward mission organizations that are trying to, remi- re- trying to remedy that? Let me remind you of Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Don't lay up treasures on earth where you have to worry about moths and rust and thieves, the volatile stock market. Instead, lay up treasure in heaven, your real home. Why? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. King David says the same thing, but in reverse, back in that First Chronicles 20, speaking of giving to the building fund for the temple that Solomon was going to build someday, David says this, Because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give to the house of my God. David says, where my heart is, there my treasure will be. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Two different ways of making the same point. If we were to stand before each other this morning with an open checkbook or our latest credit card statement, what would it tell each other about our heart? Where is my treasure? There is my heart. Am I spending my money like a permanent resident or someone just passing through? Question three. How am I using my talents and spiritual gifts? How am I using my talents and spiritual gifts? Am I serving the Lord and others with them? Am I simply serving myself? Uh, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4 that each of us has at least one spiritual gift, and as good stewards, we're to use that to serve one another, use it for the good of others. Christ set the example, Matthew 20, 28, came not to be served, but to serve. If your Bible's still open to 2 Timothy, look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Fan it into flame. Don't neglect the gift you have. Don't neglect it. Fan it into flame. He actually said back in First in, in First Timothy, three years before that, don't neglect your gift. Don't neglect it. Here he says, fan that into flame. Picture a campfire slowly burning itself out. You want to keep it going? You've got to stir it up. Don't neglect it. And in addition to spiritual gifts, what about your God-given talents? Do you use them simply for your own pleasure? Or do you also share, serve others with them? We have a friend in, uh, in Archimay. Archimay has a friend. I'll put it that way. Archimay has a friend back in the Peoria area. He's very good at woodworking. He's actually on disability. He had an injury that caused him to have to retire from his job, but he can still do his woodworking. And much of that talent of woodworking that he has, he uses to build and to donate beautiful church furniture, podiums and communion tables and crosses. And he gives that to small churches, new churches that can't afford such things. Several of our Archimay churches have benefited from his talent in that way. There's a lady in our church back in Morton with a background in education. She has started a tuition-free Christian school in the inner city of Peoria for the poorest of the poor. Because I'm here for only a short time, I should make every effort to minister to others with my gifts and my talents. Question four in a whole different realm. How am I reacting toward problems and trials? How am I reacting toward problems and trials? Do I let them get me down as if there's no end in sight? Well, let's turn once again to the Apostle Paul for some perspective. This time go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction. You know what Paul's talking about right there? Turn back to verse 7. Turn back to verse 7. We have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay, jars of clay, our mortal, fragile human bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Turn over a few pages to chapter 11, where Paul gives some more examples as he uses a little bit of uh, sanctified sarcasm to compare himself to false apostles. Look at verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they servants, those false apostles, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And yet, what does Paul say about all that? Back in chapter 4, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God's richest blessings that someday will be ours outweighs all these problems. And I dare say none of us will ever come close to experiencing most any of these problems that Apostle Paul was experiencing that we just read. Listen to this paraphrase of those verses back in chapter 4. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to what's coming in the good times, the lavish celebration that's prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now, they're here today and gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. And back in Romans 8, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This light, momentary affliction. As a temporary resident, Paul's trials were nothing compared to the rich blessings yet to come. So question four, how am I reacting toward problems and trials? Question three, how am I using my talents and spiritual gifts? Question two, how am I spending my money? Question one, how am I spending my time? Christ told a parable, which is a fitting conclusion to this message. Go back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Listen to this story that he tells to the crowd He says, starting in verse 16, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. There it is. If you don't know where that phrase comes from, it's right there. Eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, God said to him, You fool. You fool, this night 
Your soul is required. You're going to die tonight. The things you've prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And allow me to reword that last verse to say, so also is the one who sets up permanent residency on this earth and does not consider himself to be a stranger in an exile. You know the old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and what's the last line for those who know that song? I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Not just I shouldn't, I don't want to, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. You know, I think I might have mentioned this when I was here before, I've been a worship leader in worship services for 45 plus years. That used to be my vocation before I went with RHMA. Every once in a while we would need to stop and say, is that really true what we just sang or is that song making a liar out of me? I kind of was thinking about that as we sang, be thou my vision this morning. You're my best thought by day or by night. Is that true? Uh, Thou and thou only first in my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Nothing else is going to be anything to me like what you are to me, Lord. Are those true? Well, going back to uh, this world is not my home, that might be one of those lying songs. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I, I can feel very much at home. That's the problem. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't sing songs like that, songs that might be kind of making liars out of us. But what it does mean is that as I sing it, maybe I should be praying, Lord, you know that's not where I am in my walk right now. I need to be. I want to be. Help me to grow to the point where I can honestly say and sing, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And why not? Because here we have no lasting, enduring, permanent city, but we seek the one that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we know that, like Demas, uh, we're, we're prone to fall in love with the things of this world, the, the good things and the not-so-good things. Help us to honestly evaluate uh, how we spend our time, our money, how we serve you, how we serve others, how we deal with, how we react to the problems and trials that come our way. Pray that you would give us wisdom to separate the temporal from the eternal. And then, and then help us to love you in such a way that we want to make the eternal our priority, that we strive to make the eternal our priority, both as individual believers and together as members of Grace Bible Church. We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.